morning again. Welcome to Christ Church. Uh, for those of you visiting, good having you here. We're glad to have you worshiping Mother's Day morning with us. Um, I, I do also, just with Trev, want to acknowledge all the moms here. And uh, I know one thing that people have often said to me uh, as, you know, I have five kids now. Um, my wife, ha- the youngest is one and a half, uh, and the oldest is six. So my wife has a heavy uh, job on her plate, and uh, you know, people often say to me, Do you, "I don't think you knew what you were getting when you got married. Uh, you know, how high, how much higher up you were marrying when you got married." And uh, and I think you know, it's amazing that uh, how much with all of you moms, uh, just the richness of of joy, kindness, love, beauty, all the fruit of the spirit that just emerges, comes out when you're moms, and uh, I just, I commend you, I, it's beautiful, it's, it's a picture of, of who God is, his grace, his patience, um, his teaching, his wisdom, all those things are there, so I, I just, I'm glad that we have a day uh, to celebrate, and so um, I, I just thank you all moms for, for your, uh, your labor and your love, and, um, and uh, so thank you. Um, um, we're looking at Luke... 15, we're starting in verse 11, and this is the word of the Lord to you because he loves you. And he said, this is Jesus, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's servants... Have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured property with... uh, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, 
You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this amazing parable that has the power to change us, change our lives. We ask that you would send your spirit to open our hearts. Open our hearts to the grace of the gospel, the good news that we have in our Lord Jesus. And would you give us joy? Would you help us to celebrate as we think on uh, the salvation that's come to us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, I just want to begin by saying that personally for me, this Studying this passage this week was actually just a great experience of worship. Uh, looking at all the subtleties in this short story that Jesus has crafted, one of the most famous stories in the history of the world uh, that Jesus told, and life-changing. And um, I should I should just say up front that um, probably some of the things I'm going to say I, I've gotten from Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, who's had a big impact on my life. I'm not I haven't didn't really listen to him this week, but I know that I've listened to him a lot on this passage, so I'm just going to say up front, some of these things probably came from him. And uh, one of the big things that, that Keller points out about this story, about uh, the two sons, it's really a story about two sons, is um, that most of us, when we think of the different ways that you can live your life in the world, that there are basically, as Christians, we generally think there are two ways you can live. That you can live a kind of wild, irreligious life. Uh, no rules, I do whatever I want, I just follow my passions, and I uh, go out into the world, reject God, and I, I live my own life. Or you can decide, I'm going to live an obedient life, and I'm going I'm to obey God, I'm going to do the thing God, God, the rules that God tells me, and I'm going to follow him. And so there's basically two uh, ways of living. And, uh, but what we have here in this passage is that Jesus says that there's actually a grave danger in thinking that there are only two ways. There's either the uh, reject God way or there's the obey God way. If you only think that there's two ways, there's a big danger. And the reason for this is that Jesus says, first of all, that there are actually two ways to reject God. There's two ways to tell God, I don't want you in my life. I don't want you to tell me what to do. There's an irreligious way and a religious way. There's two ways to reject God, but there's only one way to come to God. There's only one way, and that's grace. Okay, so there's two. You can, you can reject God and say, I don't want you in my life. Don't tell me what to do. I don't want to know who you are, both as an irreligious person and as a religious person. That's what this text is saying. And so we're going to look uh, at those two things, that there's two ways to reject God, um, but there's only one way to come to God, and that's by grace. So we're going to kind of jump into it. First of all, that there are two ways uh, to reject God. And we're going to look at the irreligious way first. Now, the story of the prodigal son is a story that is dear to me because I am a prodigal son. I was the youngest son in my family. When I was 15, I left home to go live a life of reckless living, as, as Jesus calls it. And, you know, a lot of times when we hear about kids that are in a, the inner city... And they drop out of school, and they join a gang, and they're doing drugs, and they're stealing stuff, and they're living on the street. And you feel this sense of, you know, wow, I mean, they were just set up for it. They, their environments uh, 
that they, that they were growing up in just led them right into this lifestyle. And you feel like they almost didn't even choose it. It was just chosen for them. And in my case, it's, my story is much more pathetic than that. Um, because for me, I'm, I grew up in Bellevue. Uh, and, you know, upper middle class family. I had parents who loved me and supported me and cared for me. And, um, and my story is, is much, just like the prodigal son, it is a story of squandering, of, of God giving a lot and just, and just wasting it in, uh, in careless living. And um, what happened for me, I, uh, you know, I've, I've, as some of you know, um, one of the things that my parents did is I, I got picked up one night in the middle of the night and I was uh, shipped off to a behavioral modification program uh, that was on the island of Western Samoa, which is a little island of South Pacific boys program, and um, where I was going to get my life together. And this was kind of a, a, a new age program um, where I was going to find my magical child. And uh, by God's grace and by a miracle, some, for some reason, I started reading a Bible and praying and, and my life changed. But one of the things that happened in this program, it, part of the program, they had these seminars that you go through, this maybe two or three day seminars, where you kind of learn about yourself, you know, why are you messed up, why are you making these bad decisions. And most of them were not that helpful for me. But there was one exercise that we did in one of these uh, seminars that was actually pretty profound. Let me just take you through it. Um, these seminars happening, you know, maybe in a hut about the size of this room, there's a hut. And... What they did is that the 50 or 60 kids who were going through the seminar, they, they clear out all the chairs, and we all would find a place to lie down on the ground. And they took us through this visualization where they say, okay, you were at the mall, and you, uh, you filled out one of those things for a free cruise, you know those things? And you won the cruise. They call you up. You won the cruise. And so they take you through this thing. You won the cruise, and you got to invite all your family and friends and, and this, it's maybe a 15-minute visualization. It's very, you're with your friends, you're being so charming, and uh, everyone's laughing. You're having this great time, and the people that you really want to be with, and it's just this picture of a, of a great life together, and it's a reminder of all the people in your life. And on the end of the third day in the visualization, they say, you go into your cabin, you lie down, and you fall into a deep, deep sleep. You know, and your, your whole body's kind of relaxing. And all the staff people have pots and pans. And they kind of crowd around while everyone's eyes are closed. And they, one, two, three, and they just say, you start screaming shipwreck and start slamming pots and, pan, pots and pans. Your heart stops. Everyone ch- stands up and they say, everyone, in a circle, the ship's going down. There's one lifeboat and only three people. There's only room for three people on the lifeboat. And so all, you know, 50 kids get in a circle. And what you do is you have to go to every person in the room and you have to give them a vote of whether they get to get on the lifeboat. You get three votes for you live. And everyone else, you have to vote, you die. So you go and you face the people and you, and you say, okay, you die. And they say, no, 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 say it like you mean it. You die. And as you're saying you die, you got a staff person right here kind of in your ear and they're saying, that's what you said to your mom when you walked out of the house and she asked you to do your homework and you said, you cussed her out. You were saying, you die. And as you go to each person, they're saying, these are all the people in your life, and this is what you said to them, you die, you die. And I'm just like sobbing, snot, 
all over the place. I, I didn't give any live votes. I was, you die to everyone. And uh, it was just, everyone dies. And, uh, and because what was happening in my, the, the picture was coming to my head is that the, the relationship I'd have with my parents was this, is basically I'd said to them, you know, if you want to give me some money, I'm great. You want to give me a ride to my friend's house? Thank you. Uh, you want to give me some food? Great. But listen, I want you out of my life. Get out of my space. I don't, want, I, I don't want you. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And that's exactly, that kind of you die, I, I don't care about you, is exactly what the prodigal son does in this story. If you look, at, um, look again at verse 11. And Jesus said there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. What he's asking for is his inheritance. So as a younger brother, he gets a third of the estate when his father dies. And he says, you know what? I just assume you were dead now. Why don't you just die and give me the stuff that's, that I've got coming to me? And you can even see that, actually, as it goes on. Verse, uh, verse 12 says this. Um, uh, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me uh, the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now that word, the property is used twice in English in that word, but those are two different Greek words. The second time, it's the word bion, where we get our word like biology, life. Bios is the, bios or bion is, is the word for life. And so he divided his life among his brothers. It was a severing of his life. And it was, it was this receiving of a, um, a the, the younger son asking of his father, uh, I want my inheritance now. It was a you die to his father. And uh, another way to see this is that he wanted um, to get what the father could give him without the messiness of the obligations of a relationship, right? Relationships are messy. They take work. They have obligations. He says, I don't want to deal, uh, deal with uh, the relationship. And I think that the irreligious kind of life is very close to the core of this, of saying, uh, we, I want what God can give me, but I don't want God. Right, um, you know, in our culture, in you know, modern Western people, one of the um, the biggest values we have is freedom. I want to be free. I want to be myself, and so that's why we're very suspicious of religion and religious people, as we think God wants to get a hold of us. He wants to tell us what to do, and we're going to have all these kind of longings and passions and things that we want to do with our life, and God's going to say no, and they're just going to all get bottled up inside of us. But one of the things uh, that that's fascinating is that the times that we feel most free is not when we're free from obligations to people. The times that we feel most free are when we're with someone else in a trusting relationship where we can finally be ourselves around them, right? We can finally be who we're meant to be. We feel comfortable. There's a freedom there. And uh, that's uh, freedom. Um, relationships always include a loss of freedom. You know, I think about me, my kids and I, uh, when they get ready to school, I, get ready to go to school in the morning. We have some time to kill. I, I have this new uh, uh, Yonzi album that I got, and I put my iPhone in the little dock player, and we'll be in the kitchen, and I play. It's really good dance music, like you know, and and you know, I'm in there with my little two-year-olds and just dancing and flailing around, and uh, there's this 
I get to do with my kids, like dance with them and be all crazy, you know, and I close the shutters, make sure no, one, no neighbors are looking in. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's this freedom that I get to be with my kids that, that I, I would never have anywhere else. I get, I get to do things with them that I would never do with you and act in ways that I would, with them that I never get to act with you. And, but you know what? That came at a huge loss of freedom, right? I, I mean, you know, I, I've tried to calculate how many diapers Shannon and I have changed or will change. I, it's over 10,000, I'm pretty sure, uh, diapers <laughs> that we'll change. And, uh, you know, chasing around and dealing with discipline and, and fights. And, and I don't get to just leave my house or walk out whenever I want to. It's a huge loss of freedom. But in the loss of freedom, there's, there, there, uh, there's this gaining of life. And the myth of an irreligious life is that you can have um, freedom without the obligations of a relationship, without the loss of freedom that comes in a relationship. And, what ha- and the prodigal son learns this the hard way, right? Because he says to his father, I want your stuff, but I don't want the messiness of a relationship. And he leaves and he finds himself, squanders everything he has, and he becomes a slave. He's, he's, he's uh, uh, you know, jealous of the pigs and what they're eating. And um, I'll tell you that in, in Bellingham, that's often our, our, our attitude towards God because we love the blessings of God, right? We love all, you know, God's creation and the good things, the beauty, the green and the, and the food and the earth and the dirt and the mountain biking. and the, We love the, the blessings of God. And God, you know, God wants us to have pleasure. You know, Psalm, uh, Psalm 16 says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is a God of pleasure and goodness and blessings. And we say, yes, we want that. But don't you dare cramp my life with a relationship. Don't you dare cramp my life with the obligations of a relationship. I want your stuff, but I don't want you. And, uh, you know, actually, uh, before my parents uh, became believers, I, we would often talk about, the, uh, talk about the faith and talk about Jesus. And, and they, they would say to me, you know, Listen, I, we definitely feel like there's a God. He's seeing over our life. Uh, he's blessed us and, and taking care of us. And, and that's great. We like that. We like that God's taking care of us. Thank you. We're grateful for that. And, uh, you know, why does that mean we have to follow Jesus or read the Bible or go to church and be, you know, pursue a relationship with God? Why, why, do, why do those two things, why can't we just receive the things that he's, give, that he's always giving us and just take them? I was like, well, you know, think of it this way. They, uh, in, they have blessed me in a lot of ways. You know, I was in college for 10 years, and I was having kids in college and stuff like that. And, and they gave us support through that and, and encouragement and uh, financial support. And, uh, and I said, you know, how, what would it be like if, if you were giving me all that support? And I said to you, you know, hey, I'm grateful, honestly. Send the check. I really like it when you do that. Please do that. But listen, please don't call me. I, I don't want to hang out. I don't want to hear what's going on in your life. Don't call me. Can we just not talk, but you please send the check, right? What are they going to do? That's a complete destruction of relationship. And, and what it's not getting is that the, the, that the financial support and the, and the love and support is a byproduct of the relationship. And that that's what God wants for us, that we cannot say to God, I want your stuff, but not you. That's what an irreligious life is, okay? We can't, we, we can't bypass the messiness and the obligations of a relationship of knowing God. Now, at this point, a, a religious person might say, yeah, okay, 
get it to them, you're a religious person. <laughs> Stick it to them, that's right. You, you know, this is, it doesn't work like that. There's obligations, you wild child. There's requirements uh, for, for, uh, that God has for you. You need to do the obligations and the requirements. And that's what you don't understand, you're a religious person. And uh, now the fact is that the religious person has something coming to them uh, uh, they, uh, that Jesus has for them that actually that there are two ways to tell God you die. Okay, the irreligious way to say I want your stuff uh, but not you is that you die to God. And uh, there's a religious way to do that as well. Um, Frederick Nietzsche was a, a German philosopher in the end of the 19th century. And he was kind of a poet. Uh, he had very forceful powerful with words and could really pierce through things and um, and he's uh, Nietzsche was a very suspicious of religious people and he said you know religious people are very small minded manipulative people um, who are they basically they want to get control over people and so what they do is they say oh God wants you to be meek and mild and submissive so they tell everyone to be meek and mild and submissive and it's just really a power play so that they can get control over people so Nietzsche is very critical of, of religious people very cri- critical of Christianity and most of, you know, as, I, as what I've read, I mean, I, it's blasphemous and I feel like, you know, devilish. But uh, every once in a while, I, because Nietzsche is so critical of religious people, there are places where Nietzsche and Jesus begin to actually say some of the very similar critiques. And actually, there's this one part, uh, the, uh, critiques of religious people. And at one point, uh, Nietzsche says this, I see nobody in Europe who has any awareness that thinking about morality, thinking about the obligations, about the requirements of doing the good things, I see that no one in Europe uh, has any awareness that thinking about morality could become dangerous, captious, seductive. It could be seductive and dangerous to think about morality. That there might, no one thinking that there, uh, there might be any calamity involved. How could that be? What could be dangerous in, uh, about thinking about doing what's right and doing what's good? How could that be dangerous? That's right. Uh, yeah. Um, and, uh, and so how could there be uh, danger in thinking about doing good? Well, one of the things that's important to think about in this story, this parable, is uh, who is Jesus speaking to? And if you look back at the beginning of chapter 15, it's not printed for you in the bulletin. The beginning of chapter 15 begins by saying this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, and he told them this parable. And so Jesus, as he's talking through, through these parables, is talking to religious leaders. This is a story not for prodigal type people, not for people doing wild kind of living. This is a story for religious people. They're the main audience for this. And in fact, if you're ever reading Jesus' parables and you want a clue to like, okay, what's the main point of this parable? You always look at the end. Jesus always ends with kind of the main thing that he wants to get across. And in this parable, you know, you have the prodigal son. He says, give me my inheritance. He goes off reckless living with the... uh, and he comes back and says, Father, I'm sorry for what I did. And the father receives him back and puts a robe on him and throws a party. And then um, we have this in verse 25. This is the end of the parable. Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house. 
he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you filled, killed the fattened calf for him. And what's astounding about this passage is that the older brother and the younger brother, their lives on the surface look radically different, right? The younger brother's going off to the far country, he's partying, smoking weed, getting drunk, you know, getting prostitutes, and the younger brother's doing, yes, father, I'll do whatever you say, your wish is my command. And he's at home, he's doing all of his diligence, but at the heart... Both of them are saying to the father, I don't want you, I want what you can give me. Because here, what the, older, what, the, uh, what the older brother says is, you know, I've been serving you all these years, and you never gave me a goat. You never gave me a goat for me and my friends. The father's like, I didn't know you wanted a goat. Like, okay, I didn't know you liked goats. Okay, you never told me you liked goats. And, uh, and he's like, you didn't give me a goat. And, um, and uh, you can even see it in verse 30 there. You see what he says? But when this son of yours. See how he talks about his brother? This son of yours. He doesn't say my brother. My brother comes home. This son of yours. It's almost as if he's saying, listen, I've been serving you. I'm a servant in this house. And you and your son, you're kind of this family over there. I'm not a part of the family. I'm a servant. And I'm doing my wages. I'm doing my good deeds because what I want, I'm not interested in the family part. I'm not interested in the relationship. I'm interested in what I can get out of this. And that at the end of the day, I'm going to do my good deeds and you're going to owe me. And, um, and, what, and here we see um, that within the older brother, there is no joy whatsoever. I mean, you hear that. You know, there's music and, and dancing going on, and he doesn't, he doesn't like that. He's outside pouting, self-pity, uh, and just pettiness. And he doesn't want to go to the party. There's no sense of joy that's happening in the older brother. And uh, what Jesus is saying is that it is possible... To go on living a good life, doing the requirements, doing the obligations, and yet at the same time you're saying to God, you die. I don't want you in my life. Don't tell me what to do. I don't want the messiness of a relationship. I don't want to know you. Religious people are doing this, can do the same thing. And, uh, and that's why Nietzsche says, and Jesus says, that there is a calamity, there is a danger, uh, that a religious life is, is seductive, and um, that that's why we need to watch out for it. And actually, probably the thing that this passage is saying is what is a potentially more dangerous condition to be in? The uh, irreligious guy who's living the wild life or the religious life, the elder brother who's doing all the good deeds and thinks that, that, uh, that God or his father owes him. What's the more dangerous situation in this text? It's clearly the older brother. It's a more perilous situation. It's a religious life. Um, so why? How, um, how can it be that uh, good works and doing good is bad? Well, um, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with a gal. She, we were, she had some questions just about the faith and about Christianity. And she was telling me that her, uh, uh, she definitely believed in God. And one of the things she... Back when she was uh, working, uh, I forget what she was doing. She was working with someone, and one of the guys she was working with was a Buddhist. 
And she says, you know, I went and I talked to this guy who's Buddhist, and I was, we, we'd talk about his Buddhism, and I, would, and, and I said, do you, so do you believe in God? And the, and the Buddhist says, well, we believe in the Buddha. And she was like, well, you know, Buddha said, I'm not God, don't worship me, just follow my teaching, okay? Follow my teaching. And, um, and so it, Buddhists don't believe in a personal God in the, way, in the way that Christians do. And so she asked the Buddhist, she said to him, so if you don't believe in God, who do you say thank you to? Who do you say thank you to? Which actually, it's very perf- that's, that question cuts right at the heart of the difference between Buddhism and Christianity. It's a personal relation of, of God giving gifts and we responding in gratitude. That's the heart of Christianity. And then as the conversation went on, she was asking me, she said, okay, you know, I just don't understand this. It's just Jesus dies and forgives all your sins. Every bad thing you do, and, and you're going to keep sinning, and he's going to keep forgiving you. How, how can that be? I, she says, it just seems to me, if you do something bad, you gotta, you got to own up for it. you got to pay the consequences. And, I, I, you know, just this, these freebies. And, you know, you got to live a good life. you got to treat people well. And then, you're gonna, and then you should, God should judge you based on that. And, you know, the answer to a question, she'd already answered it. I just need to take her one step. And so I just said to her, you know, okay, imagine you live a life where you, you own up for everything you did, if it was possible, <laughs> and you live a good life. You do all the things that you were supposed to do. At the end of your life, who do you give thank you? Who do you say thank you to for that? And she's kind of like, oh, wow, uh, you know, a life of doing good works does not create a relationship. It's way to go, Nate. Pat on the back. You've really done it this time, right? There's, there's, there's an arrogance. There's a bitterness. There's a closed offness, and, uh, and a life of free grace. When God has forgiven everything, and I'm going to keep sinning, and God's going to forgive everything. What that does is it actually begins to fill me with gratitude. And I become a person who's filled with gratitude and filled with joy. That's what the elder brother, he has none of. He has no sense of joy. He has no sense that the father wants to give him everything. That, he, that everything is already his. And so the same thing is that in the father is where that joy is. It's in the relationship. That's where the life is. It's not in the goods. The goods are a byproduct. So um, the dan- there is a danger to good works. There is a danger to being good that we have to be on guard of, especially as Christians, that this text says it's even, it can be more dangerous to be doing good than to be living a wild life. So what is the other option? Well, um, or what is the third way? That's what Tim Keller calls it. There's the third way. You know, it's not religion, not your religion. What's the third way? The third way um, is, you know, this passage calls the, the wild younger brother and the diligent, obedient older brother. They're calling them both to say that there is only one way to come to God, and that is through grace through pure grace in Jesus. Okay, look, at, uh, look with me again at verse 17. But when he came to himself, this is the younger brother, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will rise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So, here, the younger brother um, has decided that he's going to go home, and he's preparing a speech, right? His father, I've sinned against you. He's kind of getting all prepared. And you, you know how that is. You know when you've done something wrong to someone, and now you've got to own up to it? 
And there's this sense of vulnerability about that, right? Because what are they going to do? You might say, you know, I'm sorry I did that wrong, and they might throw it right back in your face. They, and uh, you want them to say, hey, no sweat, don't worry about it. Uh, let's, let's get back to life together, right? You want them to do that. And so there's a vulnerability. You don't know how they're going to respond. So he's getting his speech already. I want to I make sure I say the right things that, that the father's going to like. Um, and so... Uh, and then we have those, these just wonderful words, one of the, some of the greatest words that Jesus ever said. Um, uh, verse 20, and he rose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Those great words of the, the father was watching, the father was on the lookout for him. And, uh, and he was waiting for him. And some of you, you might feel that way. You might feel that I'm a long way off from God. I'm still, uh, I'm far away from him. And the fact is that he's looking, he's waiting, he's watching, he sees you. And, uh, and in fact, uh, it's actually at this point that we know uh, that the father in this parable is actually Jesus. Because that word felt compassion, splagnitzamai, uh, is, is a word that in the, in, in the gospels is only used about Jesus. You know, he looks at the crowds and he felt compassion for them. He looked at, you know, someone who was lame and he felt compassion for them. It's this, that inner turning when you see someone that's in pain and is, and is hurting and your guts kind of turn for them. That's what, that's what that word means. And, he, and it's always spoken about Jesus. And here the father feels compassion for his son and he runs, and it, it says he runs to him. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And, you know, in, in this culture, this a patriarchal kind of cult, culture, for the father to take his robes, roll them up, you know, show his pasty white thighs and start running uh, is completely un- uncanny, un- undignified way for a patriarch, especially, you know, a wealthy uh, man who's got an estate, he's got servants, to, to act in such an undignified way where, where his foolish son has squandered everything. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what society says. He doesn't care what he's supposed to do. He runs to his son. And he just, he kisses him. And he embraces him. And when he gets there, this is great. He gets there, he's kissing him. And the son begins his speech, right? You know, I picture him with a little index card kind of reading. uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy. You know, he's practiced it all on the walk. He's been practicing it. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He doesn't even finish his speech. The father just cuts him off in the middle of it. And the father says, quick, bring, uh, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fat, fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. He just, he don't even finish his speech. You know what's amazing? The speech, what's the speech? It's all the promises. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it up to you. I'm going to be your, and, and the father says, I don't want your stuff. I want you. And the son who had said to him, I, want, I don't want you, I want your stuff, the father reverses it. He says, I don't care about your stuff. I don't care what, what servant you can give me. I want you, my son. You're back. And uh, what's really, um, you just see this extravagance of the grace. This sinner, this foolish son who's done nothing to deserve it, the father reinstates his full status. But what's amazing about this passage is that the grace doesn't just end with the younger son who's wild and partying and and, uh, living a wild life with prostitutes. The grace is also to the older brother. 
you know, the father ran out to the younger brother. What does he do to the, to the older brother? Older brother's pouting out, outside the party. He's, he doesn't want to go in. He doesn't want to dance. He doesn't like dancing. He wants his goat. And uh, look, at, look at verse 28. When the elder brother is wallowing in self-pity, but he was angry and refused to go in, his father came out and entreated him. Actually, that word entreated him, uh, parakaleo. It's to comfort. It's to urge someone to come in. Come and be, you know, the, uh, the, the word for the Holy Spirit, the helper, the paraclete. It's the same word. He's the comforter. He's the helper. As so he goes out, he's urging him, come in. And even as this son uh, says to him, you know, this your son, I'm not a part of this family. The father says to him, son, in verse 31, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. And really, the parable ends with an offer to celebrate. That's how the parable ends. You know, we don't know uh, what the elder brother does, right? Jesus leaves it open-ended. And it's a big question to us of how are we going to respond? Because the elder brother, there's no joy in pouting outside. But if he can receive the free grace, he can come in and he can come alive and he can dance and he can have a relationship with his brother. He can be a full son and he can receive the father's love as a free gift. Does he want to do it? Does he want to continue to gut it out and say, I'm going to gut it out. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to do all the obligations. I'm going to earn your love. Or is he going to receive the free grace and come alive with joy? And all of a sudden, he'll love his brother, he'll be kind, their relationship will be built. And that's the question for us. Jesus leaves the story open-ended for us to ask the same question, are we going to receive God's love freely as well? Let's pray together. Our Lord, we pray that you would give us the strength to not try to earn your love, but the strength to just receive your grace freely, to rest in the love of the Father. Rest in what Jesus has done for us in the free love, the free grace. And we just thank you for the story as you paint a picture of you running to us, uh, not caring what anyone thinks of of you, but you want to have us. You don't want our stuff. You want us. And so we ask that you give us soft and open hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name.